Chapter 3, Part 1 We jump on to the late 1890s and continue with my father's side of the family, the Gilberts. Frank is now apprenticed to a sign-writing company called Pearson Sons in Lewisham, South London. His apprenticeship would have begun when he was about 16, and sending Frank away at that young age was difficult for his family, as it was just at this age that he was expected to be contributing to the family finances like his older brother George. But his mother was determined, and thankfully for you and I, she got her way with her second son. And it was a fine spring day in 1897 when Thomas was persuaded to take leave from his foreman's job at the docks and accompany his 16-year-old son, Frank, to London to start his apprenticeship. This was Thomas's first train journey with his son, so that in itself was an adventure. Once in Lewisham and checking him in at the company he was to be apprenticed to, his father arranged lodging for him in New Cross, a short walk away from the workshops of Pearson Sons, and set him up with overalls and work clothes, which he would have to wear as an apprentice. London was smoky and dirty and very busy, and Frank was quite overawed by it. It was really the first time he'd been in such a city. His father watched him with a heavy heart, knowing that his young, sensitive son was not going to find it easy. Fortunately, their last call was to have a midday meal at one of the local pubs before Thomas was to catch the evening train back to Folkestone. In the pub, Frank spotted a piano playing, lying idly in a corner of the bar. His eyes lit up, and smiling mischievously at his father, he sidled over to it, lifted the lid, sat down, and played a jaunty tune. At once the chatter in the pub was quietened down, the publican stuck his head round the pillar and was about to remonstrate, then stopped, his mouth wide open. Several others slid round the bar to see what was going on, all watching this young baby-faced lad hitting the keys like a professional. He finished the song with a flourish, and there was spontaneous hearty applause and shouts of encore right round the pub. And Thomas himself was quite flabbergasted. He had not had the opportunity for a long time to hear his son play, as they had no piano at home, he rarely was able to accompany his wife and kids as they went up to their aunt on the Lees, so his applause was as loud and enthusiastic as the rest. The publican came over and, thumping young Frank on the shoulder, asked him where he was from. When Frank answered Folkestone, there was an audible sigh of disappointment from all. Then Thomas, quickly catching the drift of where their conversation was going, said, Well, yes, my son's from Folkestone, but he's just starting as an apprentice here in Lewisham at Pierce's. He's lodging just up the road at New Cross. Well, then followed a babble of enthusiastic suggestions, the gist of which were persuading the publican to take young Frank on for the evening entertainment. It transpired that their regular jammer had disappeared into the mist a few weeks before, and the piano had lain idle. 
So that's how Frank landed wonderfully on his feet in London. In fact, so well that his father almost missed his train back to Folkestone. So it was a happy young man who fell into, it, fell into his nude bed in his digs around midnight, having eaten rather too much and drunk quite a bit more than he should have done, and with more in his pocket than he went out with. It looks as if Frank was certainly not going to be bored or lonely in his new life in London. Being an apprentice in those days was basically being the skivvy or young servant of your seniors. If you, if you picked up any skills, it was largely due to your own initiative and effort. There was no formal teaching. You were expected to learn skills by watching and working alongside older and more skilled workers. Some would give you opportunities, but many would just use you as a lackey. Frank, however, was sharp enough and eager enough and talented enough to be quickly noticed, and he was soon recognised as a bit of a bright spark, and so was quickly earning enough to pay for his digs without help from his family, and have a few bob to spare. Most weekends and some evenings after work, he was earning extra and a few drinks by playing the piano at the pub by the station, and various other others around Peckham and New Cross, as his name got a known. Some weekends he travelled home to Folkestone. There was an easy train service straight from Lewisham to Folkestone via Tunbridge and Ashford, and by travelling third class, he would never have dreamt of anything else, he could get down to Folkestone for just a few pence. The carriage may not have had a roof and would have been wide open to the wind and rain and soot from the engine. The seats were wooden boards and the ride was by no means comfortable, only second and first class carriages had springs. But by racking, wrapping up warm, a young man like Frank would think nothing of those inconveniences, thankful only that he was not like his father, who, when he was the same age, would have had no means of travelling other than by horse or walk. The railways had revolutionised social mobility for the working class, and Frank was going to take every advantage of the modern convenience of his day. Anyway, Probably, he probably travelled with a number of the young apprentices off to their various homes in Kent, and so the journey itself would have been great fun, especially if Frank carried his squeeze-box and regaled the other passengers with musical hall fantasies. The squeeze-box, squeeze by the way, was a concertina, a small musical box operated by bellows and buttons, and the cheapest musical instrument on the market apart from the mouth-organ. Well, Frank remained at Pierce's as an apprentice and then as a young employee for at least three years. And during those years, he became a skilled and accomplished artist and sign writer, as well as, in his own time, a very accomplished tinkly-tonk musician on either the piano or the concertina. By the time Frank was 19, he was part of a small team of artists and guilders sent to do jobs all over the south of England. One of his first was in Hastings, where he and another of the train of the team, Sid, lodged with the Osgood family at 30 Alexander Road. He was a popular lodger, as he was always ready to entertain the family with jaunty tunes on his squeeze box. The three children of the Osgoods were his great fans, 
and when Frank came in from work in the evenings, they would pester him for more and more music. Frank was always ready to oblige. In fact, the Osgoods became good friends long after Frank's work in Hastings was completed, and he was often another job. That summer, an interesting job became available. It was a job that was going to change his life forever, a change that was going to redirect Frank in the direction that eventually would give rise to you and me. Pierce Signs was one of the most prestigious companies in its field in the whole of the UK. So when the owners of Saltwood Castle in Hythe needed a regilding of their gold-leaf ceiling in the chapel, it was Pierce who won the contract. Saltwood Castle was about four miles away from Frank, Frank's home in Folkestone. It was going to be a job lasting several months, so this meant Frank was able to live at home and cycled to work during the whole period. He was not only able to save on the rent for his digs in London, but was also able to benefit from the bonus such a responsible job would offer, even though he would be the most junior member of the team. But that, that alone was not going to bring about a life change. It was to be a young lady who lived on the Saltwood Castle estate. Well, Frank, as the youngest member of the gilding team, it was always his. Uh, it was he was always delegated to collect a tray of tea and home baked biscuits, generally generously offered each mid morning and afternoon by the wife of Mister Brown, the manager of the Saltwood Estate, who lived on the grounds. And so every morning and afternoon, Frank would gallop down to the estate manager's house to collect the biscuits and the tea. Mr Brown had three daughters. The eldest Madge was one to avoid. She was rather bossy and was rather disdainful of this gangly working-class boy entering their kitchen so frequently with his muddy boots. The youngest daughter, Ellen, was sweet and was quick to expect a compliment if she had cooked the biscuits that day. But it was Olive the middle one who caught Frank's eye. She was about a year older than Frank and had a quiet, self-assured efficiency about her. She was usually the one who would hand the tray to Frank, giving him a quick open smile and ask how the work was going on. So, twice a day for the next few weeks, Frank went galloping off supposedly to get tea, but it was soon quite obvious to his teammates that there was more than a thirst for tea that drove their young companion to such enthusiastic servitude. Once, when the girls came up with their father to see how the gilded ceiling was progressing, there were several knowing winks that made Frank concentrate rather too obviously on a small flower that needed more gilding than necessary. His teammates were quick to notice the demure attractiveness of the middle daughter and the quick smiles that were exchanged between the two. Frank was not to live that down, and when many were the kindly but probably rather ribald jokes that chased him down to the manager's house from then on. And so, gradually, Frank became a welcome member of the Brown household, and it was not long before he was finding all sorts of excuses to spend more time there, especially after the day's work was done and before he cycled back home. His teammates would saunter off to their lodgings nearby, 
with not-too-easily-disguised jealousy at Frank's big grin as he raced off to the manager's house. And once the family came to know Frank also played the piano, he was an even more welcome guest as he regaled the girls with the popular tunes of the day. He was careful to play only the ones he reckoned their mother would possibly approve of, sensing only as any young suitor could what would keep the doors open for him to pursue the new friendship with the daughter of the household. Well, the gilding job at Saltwood Estate came to an end, and it was time for Frank to return to his company in South London. Fortunately for him and for us, he was now an accomplished craftsman and could be discharged from his apprenticeship with full marks. So it was only a few more months before he completed his apprenticeship and returned home to Folkestone. He, he, he turned 20 about the same time and found work with a local sign-writing firm. His visits to Saltwood were definitely part of the weekly routine, much to the, much to the delight of his mother and the curious amusement of his father. Clearly a match between a labourer's son and an estate manager's daughter was not to be discouraged. Frank, however, did not see himself as a labourer's son. He was now a qualified craftsman and well able to hold his own in the strictly stratified society of his day. However, as Frank got to know the Brown family more closely, he was to discover something that was to change not just his social standing, but was to change dramatically the very person he was. Sundays was a very, were very special and different days for the Brown daughters. They went to church. This was something totally new to Frank, as although his forebears had fled persecution from France for their Christian faith, his family had long since lost any practice of church-going. The Browns, however, were regular attenders at church, but not just a normal C of E, as would be expected, but a small insignificant mission hall in Victoria Road. They regularly invited Frank to attend, but he always found an excuse as to why Sundays had to be busy helping his mother or doing this or that. But Olive was determined to get her boyfriend to church, and eventually she found the right card, and it was music. Frank's natural musical talent had initially led him to earn a few bob playing the piano in the pubs around Folkestone, and he'd easily learnt the melodies of the music hall entertainments of the time. And while he was still a teenager, he was a popular tinkly-tonk entertainer on the pub pianos. And where there was no piano, he performed on the piano accordion or the concertina. Sunday ser morning services at Victoria Hall used no musical instrument. The congregation sang unaccompanied, as a musical instrument was thought to be a distraction from the worship. However, the evening service was designed to attract those who would not normally attend church, and so a vigorous lead from a piano was always an essential part. Well, Frank was certainly one to give a vigorous lead. Only problem was, the musical memories and melodies that came so naturally to him were not exactly the ones the church would normally use. But good fortune was on his side. The great evangelists and campaigners, Moody and Sankey from America, were roaming the cities of England at that time and 
Sankey, who was the musician of the duo, had ad adapted good Christian words to the music hall melodies of the day. So Frank was in his element. Never before had the Victoria Hall piano reverberated with such jazzed-up, tinkly-tonk music that fell from Frank's fingers that first Sunday evening he attended. And now there were words available acceptable to the congregation that usually attended, and also a few who wandered in from the road outside who heard the music usually only played in the pubs, now emanating from the church. The dear old lady who previously plodded through the traditional songs for the Sunday evening service was only too happy to hand over to this, to this enthusiastic, jaunty player. So Frank had now a warm welcome to Victoria Hall Brethren Assembly, as that is what it was. A few diehards condemned the invasion of their sacred place with musical ditties, but they were in the minority. More important to Frank, however, was the enthusiastic welcome now extended to him in the Brown household. Thus it was that three things were slowly coming together in God's plans for Frank and for us. Firstly, his artistic gifting was being honed in the craft of sign writing. Secondly, his musical talent, although totally self-taught, was finding an outlet that would fit with the third area of development, which was his spiritual life. As until now, it would seem Frank's exposure to anything spiritual had been confined to the religious practices of weddings, funerals and christenings at the best. He is more likely to be seen in the local pubs than any place of spiritual enlightenment. This was now beginning to change and fast. The summer offered a new channel to Frank. Every Sunday afternoon, the Church of Victoria Hall held an open-air service on either one of the promenades below the Lees or by the popular sandy beach near the harbour. Frank was asked if he could play for this as well. He'd had some experience on a piano accordion in some of the pubs where there was no decent piano, so he was confident that he could give a good lead to the singers. The music was not the challenge. It was standing in the public alongside a bunch of people who, a few months ago, he would have never have chosen to be identified with. Here he was, not only identifying them, but leading the music. What would his mates from the pub think? No doubt there were many who recognised him, especially if the service was down near the harbour, as, as that was his usual stomping ground with his home just round the corner, on Sangate Road. Some, no doubt, would have thought he was just earning an extra bob or two playing for the preachers. Maybe some would jeer at him for joining whichever band would pay him. Others, perhaps, noting the, noting the pretty young ladies in the audience, would make ribble jokes at his expense. Well, whatever the reason, he had volunteered, or was dared into it, we don't know, to play the popular Moody and Sankey songs for these open-air preachers. It seems that very soon he realised that the message of the songs was very different to the message of the music hall, and it was not long before he was throwing in his lot with those who loved Jesus, simply because he'd found something here that resonated with his deepest needs. How long it took for him to personally own this faith and the circumstances that led up to it 
We can only guess, but I would not be surprised if Olive had not had a lot to do with it. Probably the whole Brown family, as he'd been spending far more time in their home over the last few months than in his own small tenement with his parents and siblings. However he got there, we can keep guessing, but his later life proved that he had experienced a real sense of forgiveness and acceptance into a new life as a follower of Jesus, and he was not ashamed to make bold demonstration of it. This life change was going to direct the rest of his life, for it resulted in a deep-rooted belief in Jesus Christ. From this time on, Frank's lifestyle, relationships, career course and personal attitudes were all going to have to align themselves with this deep spiritual change. The most notable outward change was, and I'm sure you can guess it, his marriage to Olive in June 1906, and then in 1908 when he began his art and sign writing business on his own, naming it Gilbert Colour Signs. The family was soon to come along, first with Marjorie in the same year, 1908, then John in 1910 and Bob's in 1914, just as the Great War began.